You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Raising Ourselves, a Montessori-inspired self-parenting guide for all ages by Gina Gorlin. I want to start today by telling you, really reading you a story. I haven't written it, so full disclosure. The children were noisily gathered around a basin of water in the room in which some toys were floating. We had in the school a little fellow, hardly two and a half years old. He had been left behind alone and seemed obviously animated with intense curiosity. I observed him from a distance with great interest. He went up to the group, tried to push the children aside with his little hands, realized that he did not have the strength to make a way for himself, and then stopped and looked around. The thought reflected on his infant face was most interesting. If I had had a camera, I would have captured that expression. His eyes spied a little chair, and he evidently thought that he would move toward the chair and make of it a little hoist and stand upon it to be able to see. With a face lit up with hope, he moved toward the chair. But at that moment, the teacher brutally seized him, or perhaps gently, as she thought, in her arms, and lifting him up over the heads of the other children, showed him the basin and said, you poor little boy, take a look for yourself. Certainly the child, while seeing the toys floating about, did not experience that joy, which he would have felt at conquering the obstacle by his own efforts. The sight of those objects did him no good, whereas his own intelligent efforts would have developed his inner powers. The teacher prevented the child from teaching himself without affording any compensation in return. He had been on the point of experiencing the thrill of victory, and he found himself borne aloft by two arms as if he were powerless. The expression of anxiety, hope, and joy which had interested me so much, faded from his face and was replaced by the stupid expression of a child who knows that others will act for him. Now, this might sound to you like a scene out of a Rand novel, but it's not. It's different in some important respects. First, it's a true story told by Maria Montessori in her book, Discovery of the Child. And second, the offending teacher in this scene isn't exactly villainous. In fact, if I'm honest, I've probably made the same mistake many times with this young lady that you see on the screen, who is my 18-month-old toddler. And I've been reading and studying up on Montessori. It's not hard to miss those cues that Montessori was so carefully attending to. In fact, in other parts of the book, and even the same chapter, Maria Montessori counsels teachers to step in and intervene because, for example, a child is losing interest in an activity through a lack of, kind of current capacity, a, a frustration with not really being able to solve it for themselves. Or a child is off task. Can everybody hear me? Am I just imagining that? Okay, good. A child is you know, knocking over furniture, mindlessly putting his feet up on the table, or being mean to the other kids. And to be able to tell the difference, you know, it might even look the same at a first pass. 
right? This child might be getting up on this chair just to get a rise out of the teacher, in which case that would be an appropriate time to intervene. So having the observation skills that allowed Maria Montessori in this case to kind of pick up on what the child really needed in that moment, that takes a lot of work. It's not obvious how to do it right. And it makes real to us just how such subtle, well-intentioned efforts, or rather errors, uh, on the adult's part can have these accruing negative psychological effects on the child in spite of you know, our best efforts. Now, this might sound like a dismal picture, but in this talk, I will offer us a path of resilience in the face of it. But consider, if it takes such skill of observation to notice and correctly identify a toddler's emotional states, so as to be able to identify what he needs in that moment, what does it take to do the same for ourselves? How well are you able to notice and identify your own emotional states and discern the legitimate needs giving rise to them while also recognizing and inter intervening upon your own emotional tantrums? How often are you able to catch your own early flickers of anxiety, hope, and joy at the prospect of some worthwhile new challenge, so as not to let it get extinguished by second guessing or neurotic worry or just pure inertia. Such self-observation and self-guidance, these are feats of self-parenting, as I've come to think of them. It's a difficult but learnable skill set, and one that I have found has many useful parallels to the work of raising a child. So to give you some context for this comparison, let me briefly highlight some of Montessori's core insights about the child at a high level. And of course, you know, there's much to read and people at this conference who know more than me if you want to kind of get more detail about this. But at a high level, there are kind of two interrelated insights that I think will turn out to have a lot of relevance for how we parent ourselves as adults. They can be summarized in two parts. One, her vision of the human potential, her vision of what the child is capable of becoming. And two, the method by which educators or parents can help to nurture that potential. Her vision for the child, the developing human being, rested on an abiding belief in the human potential for greatness, which she defined not primarily in terms of fame or status or even you know, utility to mankind, but primarily in terms of our capacity to build ourselves through work. Quote, man builds himself through working, working with his hands, but using his hands as the instruments of his ego, the organ of his individual mind and will, which shapes its own existence face to face with its environment. What motivates the healthily developing child, she wrote, is, quote, not the goal set for him by the adult, but his own drive for self-perfection. The child perfects himself through contact with reality, through activity that absorbs all his attention. And just as crucially, she regarded this human capacity for shaping oneself through purposeful activity as worthy of reverence. Her love of the child, the developing human being, precisely for his individuality, 
His inner drive to do his work, his way, is evident in everything she wrote. For example, she writes, and I often find this echoing in my own head when I start resenting the work of building my own projects. All work is noble. The only ignoble thing is to live without working." End quote. And in describing what it would take for education to, quote, save mankind at a time when totalitarianism was on the march and humanity was embroiled in two successive world wars, she wrote, it's the spiritual development of man, the enhancement of his value as an individual that we must instill in every child. And she further urged that the, quote, humanity which is revealed in all its intellectual splendor in childhood should be respected with a kind of religious veneration. She even analogized those first moments of a child's concentration on something that has caught his interest to the blooming of a flower that has just opened itself up to life. Montessori's pedagogical method flows from and is really in service of that vision of the human potential. Without describing it in detail, which is of course beyond the scope of this presentation, here are the two core tenets as I've come to understand them that characterize much if not the whole of her approach. The first is rigorous observation and the second is what I would describe as loving guidance on the basis of and as informed by that observation. So with respect to observation, she had a very particular view of how to do it and why it was important. And her vision of the human potential really drove and informed her methodology for observing and forming an objective impression of the child. She wrote that the vision of the teacher should be at once precise, like that of a scientist, and spiritual, like that of the saint because the subject of our study, in this case, is spiritual. So part of what this means to Montessori is that the teacher or parent must carefully watch for signs of calm, focused interest in the child, even if it's barely or rarely there. And so even if the child is extremely fussy or tantrum prone or checked out much of the time, which many of her test cases really were, she was working with some of the kids on whom most of society in Italy at that time had sort of given up as problem children. Okay? Even so, the teacher waits patiently for the child to show even just a passing sign of valuing something, of taking interest in something, as revealed through work. Be that the work of diligently poking at a bug to see if it'll eventually turn around, ask me how I know, <laughs> or trying to hoist himself up on a chair to see what's happening kind of beyond his line of sight. Or, a bit later in development, trying to work out the guitar chords for a song that he likes. And the goal of all of this careful observation is to nurture and guide the child's development as an active, capable valuer by providing maximum opportunities for him to deepen and grow those burgeoning interests through further focused activity. As many of you probably know, Montessori developed a whole detailed curriculum of materials and of means of arranging and presenting those materials in a, quote, prepared environment, all with the aim of shepherding the child toward independence, 
A Montessori guide achieves this both by scaling everything in the classroom to the child's physical size and strength, from the furniture to the utensils and placemats to the cubbies and the coat hooks, so that the child is able to do many more things for himself than he would in a grown-up-sized world. And also, by presenting him with materials and activities that are scaled to his level of cognitive and emotional development, so that he naturally finds them intriguing, rather than either boring or hopelessly confusing and difficult. One could say that Montessori guides selectively recreate for the child a model of the larger world as we hope that they will come to experience it in adulthood. A world that's orderly and comprehensible and beautiful and filled with opportunities for choice and mastery and changeable through his rational efforts, but not through his tantrums. And thus, she awakens in the child a natural motivation to practice the virtues like rationality, independence, productiveness, that will eventually empower him to view and approach the larger world in much the same way. Indeed, even the art hanging on the walls of a Montessori classroom is intentionally selected with these goals in mind. Now, the image shown here is Raphael's Copia della Madonna. I apologize to anyone who knows Italian enough to know how much I'm butchering that. But this is a painting that Montessori selected for her children's house classroom in Rome because it is simple, masterfully painted, a human-centric scene that naturally interests and inspires the child and stands out from a lot of the other work, artwork that they would be accustomed to encountering in their, in their daily life. Montessori, crucially, also believed in the importance of discipline. But she meant something very different from the conventional conception of what it means to discipline a child. Right? As she wrote, the discipline that we are looking for is active. We do not believe that one is disciplined only when he is artificially made as silent as a mute and as motionless as a paralytic. Such a one is not disciplined, but annihilated. Since Montessori believed that children develop and perfect their character through purposeful, intelligent activity, including the activity of controlling one's movements and curbing one's short-sighted impulses in service of one's longer-term goals, she defined discipline primarily as the training for that kind of activity and that kind of self-discipline and self-control. And the only way to learn those skills, in her view, is by being given a choice over whether and how to practice it, and being permitted to experience the consequence of practicing it or not directly in reality for oneself. So for instance, in explaining why she advocates for easily movable furniture in her classrooms rather than the heavy desks and chairs affixed to the floor that were the convention at the time, and I think still are in some places, she writes, quote, if a child's awkward movements make a chair fall over with a crash, he has obvious proof of his own incapacity. A similar movement among stationary desks would have passed unnoticed. A child thus has a means of correcting himself. And when he has done so, he has positive proof of it. The chairs and tables remain silent and unmoved where they are. When this happens, one can say that a child has learned how to move about." End quote. Notice here that giving children the freedom to fail and to make mistakes and to experience the pain of doing so is a crucial part of the learning process for Montessori. 
And just as crucially, this freedom exists within firm, clear limits. The Montessori Guide makes herself invisible so long as the child is engaged in purposeful, constructive activity directed toward a goal. But she intervenes with firm immediacy the moment that the child starts flinging objects across the room or otherwise behaving in a senseless or destructive way. And she respects the child enough to show or explain why she's intervening at whatever level that child is currently able to grasp it. Which again is helped by rigorous observation to be able to suss that out. So what does all of this mean for us as adults who are making our way through the unprepared environment of the larger world? Well, as I've come to see in my clinical psychology practice and my research and my work with, on myself as well as with a lot of clients, it means a great deal since the need for this kind of rigorous observation and purposeful loving guidance of our spiritual development doesn't stop at age 18. It just falls to us to do it. Facilitating our own moral and psychological development as adults is admittedly much harder work, at least in some respects, in that the cement of our personality has largely hardened. We're not nearly as pliable as we were right, at two or at 10. One of Montessori's scientific contributions was to identify the sensitive periods during which a child more easily absorbs certain skills, certain premises, virtues, habits, and usually these fall in childhood for most things. So for instance, if we didn't get to experience firsthand the rewards of working really hard toward independently chosen goals when we were kids, it's gonna be harder for us to internalize a love of work and a trust in our own efficacy as adults. Not only that, but most of us have probably absorbed a lot of garbage premises and habits from our culture, from our schooling, right, from the ambient atmosphere surrounding us, such as the idea that hard work is for chumps or that pursuing our independent goals too passionately, too single-mindedly is selfish and therefore bad. And so now we're gonna have the extra work of identifying and uprooting in ourselves those not so healthy premises in order to make room for the good ones. But it's also easier in some important respects, which I think are really important to hold on to and to keep in mind. For one, we're adults. Right, meaning we have final say over more or less everything that happens in our lives, over what we do, who we talk to, whom we live with, what kind of work we spend our time on, how we you know, get bread on the table, whether we get a vaccine, whether we choose to come to Ocon, right? All the kinds of day-to-day -day choices, even if it sometimes doesn't feel like we have those choices, right? We are still by and large basically free agents as adults in the modern world. And as adults, we have a fully developed capacity to reflect on ourselves, on our own premises and habits and internalized perspectives, and to take a long range view, not only of who we are, but whom we're working to become, and to parent ourselves accordingly. Choosing which premises and which methods we use in order to do so. 
that's a lot of power that I want to help us all really harness and really leverage for ourselves today. To quote Rand's own kind of reinforcement of this point about how much power we have as adults to recover from some of the damage that may have been done to us, in this case by standard progressive education, which is kind of what she's reflecting on here, you know, she writes, the adult mind has a wider range of possibilities, a greater capacity to recover, because its volitional faculty gives it the power to control its operations. So we're going to talk about how to do that today. And I think that the first really important perspective to take on here, drawing on what we learn from Montessori's method for the child, is that we need a vision of our own individual nature and potential as a human being that leverages the common essence of both Rand's and Montessori's insights on the subject. Specifically, I think we need to see ourselves, you each individually need to see yourself correctly, by the way, barring a severe level of disability that I think would preclude any of you from coming here today, that you are a being capable of achieving your happiness through independent rational work, with all that that implies. And relatedly, and just as importantly, that this fact about you is worthy of reverence. So to put this another way, I think that each of us should learn to love ourselves like a rational parent loves a child. Now think about that, how many parents are in the room? I'm gonna, you, oh good, okay. So we've got plenty of evidence here to work with and replicating my finding about how parents generally feel toward their children and why. Most parents don't love their children for getting straight A's one year, right? Or for winning that soccer championship or even for becoming a successful doctor, though they may certainly feel very proud of their child. And sometimes inadvertently sig signal the opposite to their child in the course of trying to parent correctly. They love their kids for being the particular idiosyncratic, unreplicable humans that they are and that they're growing up to be. You know, they love their children for struggling and striving and growing as they do. And when parents are upset at a child for the direction that that child is taking in their life, it's usually not coming from a place of deeming that child less worthy of love. Rather, it's usually coming from a place of worry for that child's long-term happiness and well-being. Perhaps because as a parent, you can sort of see the road ahead a little bit more clearly, or at least you have reason to think that you can, and yet you don't know how to impart that vision, that perspective to the child. So parents in the room, does that resonate? Do you feel similarly different? Okay, so, so we've got some validation that indeed, this is a perspective that's native for parents to take toward their children. In fact, another way to put this is that it's actually natural for us to take a rationally selfish perspective on behalf of our kids. Whereas it can ironically take a lot more work and be a lot less native for us to take that same perspective on ourselves. And my goal here is to preview and actually to have us all do together some of that of loving ourselves the way that one loves a child. Okay. So how do we go about it? 
Well, there's a parallelism here, as you might expect. Really, there are two broad sets of skills that map pretty nicely onto Montessori's two core tenets of pedagogy. So the inward-facing version of her pedagogical approach includes rigorous self-observation, as you might expect, and loving self-guidance on its basis. Self-observation refers to the introspective work of observing and describing our own actions, reactions, emotions, motivations, and so on, as objectively as possible, with the precision of a scientist, and also with an eye toward catching those flickers of what makes us come alive, so that we can fan them and help them to grow. In practicing these observational skills, we learn to differentiate between our own healthy and unhealthy premises and motivational patterns. And just like a trained Montessori guide, we learn to nurture and to support the former while lovingly but firmly intervening on the latter. All in the spirit of helping ourselves develop and grow into the happy, productive beings that we're capable of becoming. These self-observations also inform many other aspects of how we lovingly guide ourselves. For instance, we can encourage ourselves to take real risks in reality for the sake of what we want, while also resisting the urge to shield ourselves from the pain of failure. We can bring a long-range perspective to bear on our more short-sighted urges or frustrations, while empathizing with ourselves for feeling them. We can patiently wait for our own emotional tantrums to pass without letting ourselves be controlled by them. We can remind ourselves to love rather than resent the work that is inherent in identifying and pursuing our values. We can prepare our own environment with people and with, with the placements of you know, furniture and of decoration, with cleanliness, with order, and with art, right? Just as Montessori literally filled her classroom. And keeping in mind particularly the ways that we can keep ourselves inspired as well as accountable to those aspects of reality that might otherwise readily escape our notice, or that perhaps we might even evade. Filling our environment with the reminders of those things. And importantly, we can actively seek out additional support or outside resources and expertise for ourselves to help us through our struggles when we deem it advisable. So this is a busy slide and it includes a lot of speculation on my part, so I just want to disclaim it accordingly. But I want to share the general pattern that I think that I have spied here and just plant it as a seed in your minds insofar as it's helpful to start noticing connections between these different ways of thinking about things and, and classifying things. Okay, it helps, I think, in order to really understand and appreciate the self-parenting approach that I'm advising here, and that's inspired by Rand and Montessori, to some of its most common foils. Okay, like as opposed to what? To hating ourselves, to being against ourselves? Well, maybe. Because there are real premises out there. There are both parenting styles and sort of underlying philosophical assumptions that might motivate those parenting styles, and then ultimately the internalized versions of those parenting styles in our heads, which ha may have kind of permeated our perspective with or without our say-so. Okay? And we can start to recognize them 
kind of by sight, by sound, and by feel. So as you can see here, and as I've already sort of hinted, I think the Montessori approach rests on a deep respect for the self, which it regards as having a certain definite nature, right? It's a mind that is anchored to reality and that is developing capacities and agential powers and knowledge through purposeful work and through engagement with reality, right? Which is also a certain way and can't just be subject to our whims. So accordingly, it kind of yields a self-parenting style that is self-respectful, self-accountable, positively disposed toward work and toward oneself, right, and so on. Largely in line with the objectivist account of the virtues conducive to human thriving. And incidentally, the closest analog of this approach in the traditional parenting literature, which yielded the categories that you see on the far uh, left here, is the authoritative approach, which is mostly defined in contrast to the other two underneath it, which are both considered and shown to be less good, <laughs> less effective, uh, to yield less positive outcomes when children become adults. So what are those other two? So the first is the authoritarian parenting style. So raise your hand if you're familiar, if you've come across this triad before of authoritative, authoritarian, and permissive parenting. Okay, so I'll, I'll say a little bit about it. Um, I never know in my little academic bubble you know, what's like common cultural lingo and what is just esoteric to me. So I'm glad I clarified. So authoritarian parenting refers to what you might imagine from the term, right? really structured, really demanding, but also cold. Like a drill sergeant parenting approach, or the tiger mother, you know, which was a, a kind of archetype that really made the rounds in our culture for a while. And you might recognize it from some of its inward-facing manifestations, such as a tendency to really criticize and berate ourselves, to deny or suppress our own emotions, to try to white-knuckle our way through difficult or painful circumstances rather than giving ourselves the empathy and the support that we might need. Quick show of hands. Does this resonate with anyone? Does this sound familiar with respect to your own mental dialogue at times? Okay, thank you for your honesty. I'm raising my hand also here just to, you know, kind of step up and, and model the kind of self-honest sharing that I hope we'll do a little bit of here together. Okay. This is a common one, particularly for those who have really ambitious goals and aspirations for themselves, right? Because there's this idea that really permeates our culture that the only way to succeed and to be ambitious is in effect by kind of suppressing our individuality and our spontaneity and to kind of toe the line. There's a false dichotomy at play here, as we can see, particularly when we get to the next not so great, not so uh, fruitful parenting style, which is the permissive style and approach. So you might guess you know, what this refers to by way of parenting. So I think the really instructive thing to attend to here is, well, how does it manifest in our own heads insofar as we might have internalized it? This often takes the form of self-pity, wishful thinking, self-indulgence, a kind of victim mentality with regard to problems or you know, struggles or challenges in our lives. And also, and again, this is 
really a kind of working hypothesis on my part, but I'm happy to share it and maybe even get your feedback afterward, that I think the kind of aversion to work might also have some of this underlying kind of subjectivist perspective uh, driving it, where, for example, if you have to put in long hours or really struggle through some confusion and uncertainty as part of your work, it feels like something's wrong. Like, wait, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. What, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I just wasn't born with it. Right? Maybe I don't have what it takes, right? With that implicit perspective of you're, you either have it or you don't. Greatness is born, not made, right? And it feels really aversive, even when it's in pursuit of your valued goals. Any brave souls willing to fess up to sometimes noticing this pattern in their psychology? Okay, good. I hope that I'm right in sensing that maybe some of the same hands went up. Mine also went up, because definitely, definitely uh, struggle with this one on a not infrequent basis, even to this day. And we will find that these are not actually mutually exclusive. Like any false dichotomy, they are pretty similar at the root, and you end up sort of toggling between them much of the time. Okay? And you'll notice, and I'll actually just skip back for a moment, you know, to really look at the underlying intrinsicism, the kind of underlying assumptions about ourselves and about the world that kind of straddle these two false approaches and false perspectives, where on the one side you've got the kind of intrinsicist view that something other than your happiness and your selfish needs is the standard by which you prove your worth, right? And that's something, it could be your piety, it could be your ability to graduate from Harvard, it could be your altruism, it could be your rational virtue, insofar as you hold that in your mind as a kind of rigid standard from on high that is kind of divorced from your selfish needs and values that give rise to the utility of those virtues. Okay. And then on the other hand, you've got the kind of subjectivist ideas that, you know, happiness and worth, it's all subjective. So these are just constructs. One child's tantrum is another child's self-expression, if you will, right? And who cares what in particular you make of yourself or, or do with your life? Just kind of follow your gut, do what you feel like, you know, and, uh, and things will work out. Not great guidance at the end of the day, because it doesn't actually work that way. So that uh, goes for the three primary pillars of this kind of parenting triad that researchers have studied and have kind of talked a lot about. But then there are these two other parenting styles that are discussed in other contexts and that, you know, you've all heard of the idea of helicopter parenting, right? The oh, kind of overprotective parent who bears down on the child. And this comes up a lot in the kind of research that I've done on anxiety and the transmission of anxiety disorders to children because anxious parents tend to make anxious children. And at least part of the reason for that is that, you know, in spite of ourselves, we might sort of model that hypervigilance and that kind of overcautiousness and aversion to risk that kind of perpetuates itself then from generation to generation and leads us to be kind of too quick to rescue the child from a difficult experience, too quick to intervene, too quick to, to protect. And on the other hand, I think there's a, another way of coping 
with what might be that same underlying premise, right? What Rand calls the malevolent universe premise, that same underlying kind of fear or, or impression of the world as being dangerous or irrational or, you know, a world in which our values can't be achieved, a world in which it's futile to want things and to care too much about things, right? That you can cope with either through this hypervigilant kind of approach or through a more detached kind of approach, right? Think Dominique, where you try not to let yourself want anything too much. And notice how there are certain kinds of internal dialogues, right? Ways of parenting ourselves, ways of talking to ourselves that mirror these two approaches. Where you might tend to be really self-doubting and to really focus on what could go wrong on the one hand, or you might be kind of dismissive and self-mocking and stoic and devil-may-care. You know, this used to be my absolute most hated word in the English language when I was in middle school. You know, chill. Just chill. Jeez, Gina, why are you so, right? Ugh! I just remember it made my skin crawl. I mean, it still does, I guess, if we're, if we're being honest, right? But I think that there's this mentality underneath it of, hey, don't get too into it, and then you won't be disappointed. And we can see how each of these perspectives, it can really metastasize, it can really turn vicious. The more we kind of give into it, the more we feed it, and the more it brings us into a clash with reality, with other people, with the kind of life that actually would be conducive to the kind of being that we are. Okay, so keeping in mind some of those different perspectives and how they might show up, we're also gonna look at how they infiltrate into our souls from another direction. So far, I've only spoken of parenting, right? The talk is about um, a Montessori-inspired guide to self-parenting. But of course, education is also a major contributor to the kinds of internalized premises that we end up with, right? So here's a tweet that went viral on Twitter, which I am now a user of and know how to pull quotes from right here. So. I'll be curious if these resonate with you guys. This list of things that we've learned at school that now we have to unlearn. You only have one chance to do anything, and if you fail, you're either, you're either stupid or lazy. Does that ring true <laughs> with others' experience of school? Yeah, asking questions gets you in trouble. There's only one correct way to do things, and it's up to authority to decide what that way is. Again, we see a lot of the parallel kind of perspectives reflected here, probably erring more on the authoritarian side. But of course, we know that there's also the flip side, right, of the false dichotomy that a lot of us, I think, were really hampered by, which is when the learning environment just isn't that rigorous, right? When there's too little expected of us, when the implicit message is that, yeah, you can do whatever you damn well please as long as it doesn't involve caring too much or working too hard. Raise your hand if that resonates with your experience. Yeah. Maybe, again, on both sides. Because those descriptions aren't actually that incompatible, right? Because often these are the same schools where we can kind of coast once we figure out the rules, right? And the, the kind of the, the code by which to signal to the teacher that we're following directions. So we've got this coming at us from all directions, right? It's really no wonder that we grow up struggling, right, to 
nip our procrastination in the bud, right? That we struggle with self-doubt, with kind of beating ourselves up, with demoralizing kind of self-indulgence and denial on the one hand, self-criticism on the other, particularly in the face of our own long overdue efforts to really think and live for ourselves. Since this is the cultural landscape in which we find ourselves, we have our work cut out for us in trying to adopt this new Montessori and Rand-inspired self-parenting approach as adults. But on the bright side, this approach in itself can be a corrective against beating ourselves up too hard or giving up too easily when we inevitably find that we've slipped back into our authoritarian mode or our permissive or paranoid or nihilistic mode of relating to ourselves. Right, since all of this is part of the patient, loving work of observing and guiding our own spiritual development. So with that said, I want to go ahead and try it out together. So what we're going to do, if you have something to write on, or if you want, you can, you know, if you have a computer, feel free to get that out. Laptops are not prohibited in this course. Um, or, you know, if you would like to do it in your head, of course, that's totally fine too, though I do recommend, when possible, jotting things down so that you can later refer to them and see them accumulate as part of your growing data set by which to understand and guide yourself. And keep in mind that this set of prompts that I'm about to show you for this exercise is one suggested way that you might ease into the process of observing and guiding yourself. It's certainly not the only way. Okay? The actual process of parenting ourselves is going to be as varied and complex and untemplatizable as well we are. Right? So take this as a starting point and an invitation. So to start, go ahead and think of a current situation through which you could use some self-parenting. Okay, this could be large or small. It could be what to do with the rest of Ocon, right? How to make the most of your remaining time at this conference. Or it could be about a relationship that's kind of been on the rocks or that's been causing you some distress and that you're not sure how to move forward or what to do with. Or it could be about what to make of your life or anything in between. But just something that's kind of on your mind, something that you, you've got decisions to make, you've got to figure out a resolution, a way forward that you'd like some self-parenting for. Okay. So has everybody had a chance to think of a situation? Something to, to work with? Just a head nod. Okay, good. And I'll try to balance timeliness with, you know, space to try these out. So if I'm ever either going too fast and you want to just signal like, hey, hey, I'm still working on this one, you know, feel free. This is the signal. It's very scientific. Um, and likewise, you know, if you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. On to the next one. Exactly. Thank you, Andrew. I'm counting on you for this. Okay, good. So first, just jot down the facts, the immediate basic facts of the situation. What's happening? Okay, so just as you know, a Montessori guide would begin by logging direct perceptible observations of what the child is doing, right, what the teacher can kind of see and, and hear, before making any inferences about what the child is feeling or what the child needs from the teacher. So we're going to practice this, you know, with respect to ourselves. Okay, so what are just the basic immediate facts of the situation? Maybe it's 
for example. You know, my friend said she had to leave early the last time that we hung out, and then she canceled the next hangout, and I don't know why. Or she didn't say why. Right? So nothing really yet about your own internal process, because we're about to get to that, and we want to be systematic in how we log it. Okay, so notice I didn't write that as, my friend doesn't want to talk to me anymore. That's an inference that we're going to need to separately log and then check, right? Or my friend stood me up, which is already an inference. Might feel like a fact, but actually, wait, do we know that that was the kind of implicit intent? Okay. So everyone had a chance to just write down the basic facts. This one shouldn't take too long. Okay. So now, this is more of a doozy, and the rest of our prompts are largely going to build on this question. So, and notice we're in self-observation mode, yes? That's the stage that we're in, so it's worth noticing. We're not in a guidance mode yet, right? We're just observing, we're just describing, we're getting to know our own internal landscape without yet judging it or trying to figure out if it's true or what we actually want, okay? We're just getting to know our internal states. So, what are some emotions that come up for you as you reflect on this situation? Note, emotions generally take the form of a one or two word feeling label, right? Like anxious, frustrated, angry, excited, rather than statements of what you think is going on or what's causing you to feel that particular way, because that's going to come at a separate step. And it's worth being able to pull those things apart when we introspect. So whatever the feelings you write down, try to also note how you can tell. What's your evidence that you're feeling this way? In particular, what physical sensations or other directly introspectable aspects of your current experience are you picking up on to tell you that you're feeling this? If you're feeling anxious, is it that you have knots in your stomach, a kind of tightness or hollowness in your chest, right? That, you're, that you almost feel a little bit vaguely queasy when you think about this situation? Or if you're angry, or your fists clenched, or were they clenched the last time that you were you know, having an interaction with the person that you've got this conflict with? Or did, do you remember how you reflexively raised your voice the last time you spoke with the person? And that's the feeling behind that you notice is kind, of, kind of still lingering. You could see yourself getting animated if you think about it and imagine the conversation again. And as you're introspecting this, it might also help just to take note of how intensely you feel each emotion. I'm assuming most of you will have more than one emotion, by the way, about your situation. And it's just worth noticing what they are and writing them down, and maybe having a little bit of space between them, because I'm going to ask you some questions that might be worth actually asking separately for each emotion. Because they might turn out to kind of pull you in different directions or have different perspectives underneath them. But it might be worth noticing how intensely you feel each one, especially in case you need to later kind of check and calibrate that intensity when you get to the you know, self-guidance stage. Okay, if you need more time, wave your hands. Okay, good. So we're ready to continue. I expect that this exercise is one you'll be continuing to uh, make your own and, you know, to kind of iterate on after we leave here today. So for each emotion that you've written down, you, now you get to kind of delve in a little bit and you get to see, you know, what goes in the blank if you kind of fill in the sentence, I feel X because I think that Y. Or the part of me that feels X must think that Y. Right? Doesn't mean you agree or that you endorse it. Again, we're not yet at the kind of guidance and decision stage. We're just at the 
noticing and logging and documenting stage. So if you feel anxiety, is it that you know, you're thinking, well, maybe I offended her. What if we're not going to be able to be friends anymore? What if she's fed up with me? What if I don't, what if I try to get in touch with her and then she gets even more annoyed at me? Or what if something bad happened to her, right? That could also be a source of our anxiety in this kind of hypothetical scenario. Or if you're feeling some shame, you know, maybe it's that you think that you've done something to alienate your friend and this is the kind of person you are. You alienate people and, ah, oh, like here you are again. What is wrong with me? Why do I push away everybody that I get close with? I don't deserve any friends. You might also notice, in addition to the content of what your feeling is based on, is there a particular tone or a style to the thoughts that you wrote down in the content section, right? Like, when I go back to the way I was imagining thinking when I'm ashamed, it's like, you don't deserve any friends. What the heck is wrong with you? What is your problem? This is just the kind of thing that, hmm, there's a recognizable flavor to that way of thinking, right? It's self-berating and self-critical, and it's sort of like hostile. It's anti-me. It's, it's not very friendly to me. It's not like it's, you know, that that automatized kind of internalized mantra is trying to like help me to fix my friendship, right? So notice that. Sometimes that can give you really useful insight into the different internalized perspectives that you're dealing with and that show up in your head. Okay, and also check in with yourself about kind of what is this feeling motivating me to do or not do? Does it make me want to reach out to my friend to avoid the whole issue and hope that it boils over, not boils over, blows over, Freudian slip? Um, or keep dwelling on it for a while and, you know, hope that I'll kind of beat myself into finding an answer? Or ask someone else for reassurance that we didn't do anything wrong in this situation, or maybe just for advice on what to do now. Okay, and of course you may be feeling multiple different emotions, as we've seen, right, that are pulling you in different directions. In which case it's all the more useful to notice and document where those emotions are pulling you, so that later if you need to mediate between them, when you get to the guidance stage, you'll have some intel on kind of what they're all saying and, and what they all want from you. And if you really want to be ambitious with this exercise and you've had some practice with the basics, you can kind of even get deeper with the motivation and see, is it pulling me towards something positive, towards something I want and need in my life, or is it fundamentally just pulling me away from discomfort? Which also relates to the next set of prompts that might be worth attending to as we're kind of drilling down a little bit, okay? Where we start to get at the underlying needs and values and premises that might be informing this set of emotions that we feel about this one situation that we've chosen. So, for example, you might see if you can answer or, or fill in the blank of the sentence. You know, I feel X because I care about blank. Maybe it's that I'm frustrated with my friend because I really value the friendship, right? Or because I really value punctuality and it really bugs me when, you know, my friends flake out on me. And whatever that is, what makes that important to you? Okay, and this is one where you also can get kind of as ambitious as you want in a particular moment of introspection, depending on if it seems fruitful, if it seems like it's leading you somewhere um, that, that will give you some insight on yourself. You, you could go all the way down to core values, core premises if you want, by just continuing to ask yourself, well, why? 
Well, why does punctuality matter to me? Why does it punctuality matter to me? In this case, it doesn't matter to me with my other friend who, you know, because I just know that they're always late. So why is it hitting me so hard this time? Well, because I also have questions in my mind about this friendship already, and so I'm not sure if this means that my doubts were confirmed. Wait, so then why is that so important to me? Because I get a kind of visibility from this friend that I don't get from anybody else. Ooh, okay, that's useful to know. I've just learned something really important about myself, about the friendship. It's certainly gonna now inform how I guide myself. Or if you find that you kind of hit a dead end with that kind of why exercise, and you know, the most you get is, well, because it's annoying when I get stood up, so I'm annoyed. It's just that I hate being stood and it just doesn't feel like it has the appropriate gravitas to explain the intensity of what you're feeling. Then you might ask yourself, okay, are there other feelings? Like, is there any feeling hidden under this feeling? Right? Like, maybe under the annoyance, there's like a loneliness or a disappointment in what you were really excited you know, about getting to experience during this meetup with your friend. Like maybe you do get a unique visibility and so you were really looking forward to that. You really need that visibility right now. It's been a really hard time. You have felt really alienated from the people around you and maybe, and that's a harder feeling both to kind of notice and to acknowledge because it's a lot scarier in some ways. It's more vulnerable. It's going to be harder to solve than if this were just a punctuality issue. But it sure is important to know if you're to really nurture your own growth and attend to your own spiritual needs. And similarly, with respect to core premises, okay, you can ask yourself, in addition to, sometimes this will overlap with the kind of core values exercise. You'll also notice, oh, wait, I am really afraid of ending up alone. I believe that people will flake out on me. I believe that my happiness is just unattainable because this is just out of my hands every time that I try to make something work. And I also don't really believe in my capability to get what I need and to make friends, right? So one can kind of bleed into the other because values are premises with a kind of, you know, normative, you know, is this a good or a bad thing for me kind of element to them, right? But you might also check on what are some of the other assumptions about myself, about the world, about other people, about values, about work, that might be implicit in the way that I'm feeling about this. Is there some part of me, is this part of me that's feeling this intense frustration, does that part of me maybe not fully believe in my capability to solve these kinds of problems or to have constructive conversations or whatever it may be? And finally, if you find on doing this introspection that this inner voice and perspective is one that you recognize, that it plays a significant role in your mental life, that it comes up a lot, it might be useful to give it a name. Like Nervous Nelly, or that intrinsicist drill sergeant, or my insecure 14-year-old self, or my tantruming 10-year-old self, right? I've come up with many of these with my clients and for myself over time, and it's really, you know, a creative exercise that only you can ultimately decide on because you know, these are your internal characters and it's your inner world. But I find that it's useful sometimes just to kind of label them so that then whatever you learn about them today, you can kind of generalize to future instances when they show up and speed along the process of dialoguing with and maybe uprooting some of the premises that you just don't endorse anymore. Okay, so having done all that, we're ready to do some self-guidance. 
So first step is to really be conscious, really be deliberate about the tone that you're setting for your own self-dialogue, for your own work of getting through this situation in a way that helps you grow, that helps nurture your needs, right, as you're stepping into that self-parent role. And this will really depend on what you've observed and on what you know that you need and want out of this introspection exercise, right? So for example, maybe you need to adopt a kinder, more loving, more forgiving, more patient tone with yourself because you realize that that bleak or self-berating you know, critic has been really loud and really prominent in your head as you think about this. Or, on the other hand, perhaps you want to speak in a firm and no-nonsense way to yourself in this situation because you know that you need some accountability. Because you know that you might have a tendency otherwise to kind of slip into wishful thinking or escapist kind of mode and not fully appreciate the gravity of the situation. Or to kind of deny your own agency in the problem that you found yourself in. And so maybe you give yourself a little mental kick in the pants. But Again, with that underlying perspective of, hey, me, this is me, and I, sh you know, I want to dialogue with you here because this is leading us down a road that we don't want, <laughs> right? It's almost even like noticing that when, it, when you start using we as opposed to like you, this, and you, that, like that might actually be a nice kind of symptom that maybe you're moving in a direction of a more rationally selfish self-parenting approach. Again, I'm looking for the signal, otherwise I'm going to keep moving, because I assume I'm going to err on the too slow side. Okay, sure enough. <laughs> All right. You might ask yourself for any additional facts or context that you've neglected to think about, and that might be useful to kind of add to the picture, add to the mix. You know, whether that's a way of kind of framing the situation, whether that's reminding yourself of times that you have successfully resolved this kind of conflict, or just kind of pointing out to yourself that you don't actually know why your friend stood you up or why this thing happened and that you need more data before you can kind of jump to any given conclusion, right? And just as importantly, what are your choices in this situation? And what are the stakes, particularly the long-term stakes, because those are the ones that you know, are most likely to kind of fall out of our sight when we're feeling especially you know, a strong emotion, what's actually going to be the kind of cost and benefit ratio of any given way of proceeding in this situation? Sometimes I actually find it helpful to like quantify it. Not always, but sometimes, because you, you might notice that, okay, wait, so I've been really preoccupied with the possibility that she's never going to talk to me again if I say the wrong thing in my text about how I'm a little bit annoyed. But like how actually, and that would be terrible, that would actually be awful because I really value this friend, but how likely is it that she'll stop talking to me over one, like even if it peeves her, even if I word it the wrong way, like we've survived far worse together before. So probability on that, I would give like a 2%, if that, right? Which then kind of shifts gears for you in terms of like how are you actually managing the risks and seeking out the value on each side, right? Um, and similarly, you might be focused on something that's a kind of fairly trivial cost 
as we often do, but that might feel really important in the moment. Like it's going to be a, such an awkward exchange and it's going to feel really, ugh. it's like I just, both of us are just, our skin's going to be crawling. We'll wish that we didn't have to even be in the room together having this horrible conversation. What about long-term? Well, long-term, if I don't address it with her, this is just going to keep on eating at us both until we slowly just fall apart. On the other side, all oh, right, we get to like build and grow a deep friendship that lasts a lifetime. Suddenly it seems like a little bit more of a no-brainer, right? And this often comes up in context where we're thinking whether to have a hard conversation with somebody. Okay. And finally, you're ready to kind of guide yourself on what to do, which is an important aspect of the uh, self-guidance process, obviously. Maybe the most important at the end of the day because it's through activity, through purposeful action and reality that we learn and grow, right? So all things considered, what do you want to do? And how do you want to explain it to your emotional self, especially if it's not fully on board yet? And that's really important, right? Just as a Montessori guide would take the time to explain why we don't throw things, right? Why we kind of try to respect each other's space, to teach grace and courtesy as a kind of mindset, to inspire and motivate care and consideration in how a child kind of moves about the room and you know, takes turns with toys. So similarly, if we respect ourselves, if we value ourselves, our whole selves, including the emotional parts, right, then we want to take care to really make our case to the parts of us that aren't convinced that this is a good idea or that this is going to go over well or that we can handle it. Right? Like, What do we want to remind ourselves of and how do we want to sort of give empathy to the parts of us that are really, really afraid and really like digging our heels in so that we can kind of walk alongside that part of us and so that at least it kind of keeps its eyes open and can see and learn with us that it's not the end of the world, for example, right? And if the emotional part of us, you know, is still digging its heels in, what are we still missing? Maybe it knows something, maybe it's onto something that we haven't identified yet. What is the underlying premise that we haven't fully addressed? Like, what is it that's still keeping me from being really sold on this idea that I should go and talk to this friend or that it's worth, you know, going to this talk versus that or whatever the decision may be? Okay, so that's the method. Now you've gotten to try it out once. Again, I'm sure we've just barely scraped the surface. Think as you head into the Q&A, think about, like, what are you going to take from this? How are you actually going to go forward and parent yourselves because like I said, you know, there's an infinite way, number of ways to do it and it's your sort of creation at the end of the day. But to be agential about it, to ask yourself the question, the meta question of like, how do I want to talk to myself in these moments? I think is just a really important starting point. Okay. And I think since uh, the real, well, Dr. Bayer, I think it's also worth hearkening back a little bit, if you recall, so those who attended his talk on the virtue of pride, that you might actually find some important analogs here to the way that the objectivist virtue of pride actually gets cashed out day to day in our lives, in our kind of mental experience of ourselves. Because if you think about it, like this is the kind of technical first personal operationalization of that commitment to really loving ourselves and our life enough to work at cultivating and improving ourselves over time, right? I mean, this is really the kind of love. It's the kind of love that a parent feels for a child, like as we've seen. It's the kind of love that Maria Montessori felt for the human potential in every child. I think it's the kind of love that we each need to activate within ourselves if we're to answer fully to that calling 
And if we do that, you're all probably familiar with this quote. It's a kind of classic quote of Ayn Rand's, usually used in reference to kind of fighting for our values in the culture, you know, fighting for the right ideas. But I think that there's a way in which it's more personal than that. I think there's a way in which we get to experience the best version of ourselves in the here and now when we're fighting for that version of us in an ongoing way. Okay? Even if you're like me and you have to guide yourself over and over again through the pain and fear and guilt and through the underlying premises that you have to spend so much of your adult life trying to unlearn, there's a deeper part of you, the self-parenting part, that knows who you really are and why you're doing all of this. And that part of you is real. It exists. It's possible. It's already yours. So thank you. And we have about 15 minutes for questions. Thank you. And there's Alice again. So, yes, come on up. And feel free to share of your own uh, realizations as much as you know, ask any questions that have come up. Hi there. Um, Hi. A question about the chart. Um, there's authoritative, authoritarian, permissive, overprotective, and uninvolved. I've definitely met um, more than one authoritative, authoritarian, permissive, and overprotective individual style. But I've only ever met one person in my life who had that uninvolved mentality. Hmm. I was kind of wondering, Interesting. What, what would you say kind of produces that mentality? Because it seems so rare, at least in my experience. And hmm. I wonder, like, what could that possibly be like? Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess it's a bit of a gestalt shift for me because I just don't see it as rare in my own habitat. I mean, and it could be a question of what subcultures you've found yourself in and that you tend to, I mean, again, I largely, I think back to the students in public school who were kind of annoyed at me for caring as much as I did. And even there, I think a lot of it is kind of packaged together with, you know, I also had my own insecurities at the time, and some of that was probably just, you know, a legitimate reaction to me kind of steering, uh, kind of, what's the word? Steamrolling over everybody. But I see, well, I guess a show of hands. So raise your hand if that one doesn't come up for you. Raise your hand if you similarly feel like, yeah, that one's an oddball. I don't know too many uninvolved people. Interesting. What about, oh, yeah. I've met a bunch of those. Okay, okay, so I'm not, I mean, I, get, I think partly there may be interesting cultural differences and I don't know what the culture is that we'd be comparing or the subculture, but I think if you're, like I don't expect to find very many people like that here. I'll put it that way. I don't expect to find many people like that in settings where there's like ambitious goal pursuit happening, right? Like an athletic or right, competitive side. I don't expect to find them in the military. Right? Where I expect to find a lot more of that kind of like drill sergeant approach, right? But if you were the kind of person who coped with your malevolent universe premise by kind of chilling out and not trying, you probably wouldn't end up self-selecting into one of those fields or into one of those settings, if that makes sense. Although, even there, there are some exceptions, because I think some people, I mean, 
you know, Dominique is this kind of really strange, non-representative fictional version. But I think if you kind of look around, it's probably you'll see it in much subtler forms. May, again, maybe in ourselves sometimes, maybe in other people, but to the extent that people are, for example, don't want to admit how much they like somebody until and unless, you know, they clinch the deal. But I think that's one way that it might show up is that, ah, I mean, I guess, yeah, they're nice to talk to, but whatever, kind of take it or leave it, or who are just like afraid to commit, right? Who are afraid to, you know, okay, let's make this official. Like, this is just a casual thing. We're just hanging out, Netflix and chill or whatever. There's the chill again, by the way, right? <laughs> Which is not a, a coincidence, I don't think, right? Because there's this kind of like self-protective thing. Like, we have plausible deniability. What? We never cared that much about each other. So I think it's more so a question of like the context and circumstances where it comes up more so than like types of people. I think that's my considered answer at the end of that uh, self-parenting dialogue that you all had to hear. I kind of figured out what I think about this, but no, it's an interesting question. Hi. Thank you for the talk. That was great. Very helpful. Um, Thank you. Why do you think, I, I think this tool of, of taking the perspective of a, kind of an outside perspective, like of a parent, I, I find that very helpful. But why do you think it's necessary to sort of get an outside perspective on oneself in order to cultivate self compassion mm -hmm. as opposed to, I mean, maybe it's just me coming from the authoritative type of background of, you know, the tendency to beat oneself up and be really harsh with oneself. And do you yep. think it's something about our current culture? Like maybe in ancient Greece, people didn't do that <laughs> to themselves. Great or is question. it something else more fundamental to human nature that, that there's this natural tendency to be much harsher on oneself than one would be with a friend or even a stranger? That's a really interesting question. So I actually, at first I thought you were asking something a little bit different, which is also interesting, which is like, why would we ever need someone else to do this for us? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or maybe that's part of the question. So, part of it. And then more specifically, like, why don't we realize that that's a not helpful way to be, right? Like the kind of self-berating approach in particular. So I guess I'll answer that one because that feels like it's more the core of your question and then maybe say a word on the other one. So in terms of why we beat ourselves up and is that cultural? I mean, that's a great question. I, honestly, at best, I could only speculate. I think there are probably historians in the room, historians of ideas that could give you a better answer. But I think at least a part of it, and this will also relate to my second answer, it has to do with human nature and the ways in which we hold ourselves accountable and the, the legitimate ways in which we kind of need to be ambitious and to hold ourselves accountable that can very easily kind of come apart from this really careful causal perspective on like, wait, but what, what's the actual what for here? Like, what is in this for me, right? It can very easily become about the kind of the grind and it can become about the kind of day-to-day, -day, like, no, I need to make sure that I'm on track and that I'm achieving my goals and I need to, you know, be the best version of me that I can be. But then we kind of lose sight of the why a little bit. Like, I think emotionally it can just lose some of its reality. And the default is not that we have a really clear an emotionally vivid vision of the life as a whole that we're working toward, right? Like that's a really difficult thing, right? The knowing what you want is the hardest thing in the world. I think I'm paraphrasing one of the novels, right? So I think that's part of it. Is the default is just not to have a good idea. And so if we're nonetheless really ambitious in wanting the best for ourselves, but we don't have a clear idea of what that means, it's really easy to fall into that pattern. So that's kind of one attempt at the answer. And then I think 
analogously, it's an achievement to self-reflect and to be able to do the kind of work we're doing here where we're realizing we have certain premises. But, but our general vantage point is outside right, of our own heads. And so to be able to kind of look back in on our heads and notice, oh, wow, I have these blind spots. I have these tendencies. It's extremely hard and in some cases maybe impossible to do completely on our own. And I think we have such an advantage as a third party coming in because we've got an extra set of eyes and ears that aren't already, you know, kind of living inside the perspective that we're trying to diagnose. And it just it's much easier to kind of see a lot of the things that, that would be harder to see first personally. So I hope that, yeah. Yeah, thank you. So the third party perspective is just sort of like a tool to have a more objective view of yourself, even yes. setting aside all the toxic authoritarian stuff that we yeah, live with. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's you. well summarized. <laughs> thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, so I, I thought that your, um, the chart that you had that compared these different parenting styles to philosophical flaw, like premises, I think that, that was very insightful. And I am a young person, and I experience, um, I, I think that I very much fall in, uh, I notice in myself both on the, on the authoritarian side, both the, the style of self-governance, self-parenting, so to speak, and also the this sort of intrinsic idea that like that I have some sort of potential that's like outside of myself that I have to or or like a certain path that I'm like supposed to follow, which I I'm rec I'm rec just starting to recognize that that's a flawed premise, and I think this is something that you see commonly in people my age. I'm sure that you yeah. see this a lot. <laughs> um, it's uh, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about like like yeah. coming coming. So what are what are some techniques sort of for that that sort of area of cognition and and coming out of that and yeah I mean in a way all of cognitive behavioral therapy and sort of the toolkits of cognitive restructuring and of self-parenting being kind to ourselves kind of taking that deliberately loving right and objective perspective on our own mental dialogue I think all of that can be put in the service of this issue which is so pervasive and I absolutely agree with you and I think both again kind of recognizing and honoring where it's coming from, building on our last conversation uh, with the previous questioner, that this is largely about you caring about your life and wanting to be the best, right? And if you really want to take that seriously, how well is it serving you to berate yourself and be yourself? Like, what does that actually do for your motivation, right? And actually tracing it, which is what I do with a lot of clients, is actually looking kind of causally, okay, so, you know, what you did in the morning at 9 a.m. was you beat yourself up a bunch. So how much did you get done over the three hours that you meant to set aside for this, right? And then what about like, okay, now you're gonna try a different exercise, just run an experiment. You're actually in the morning, you're gonna say to yourself, you know what, I'm gonna treat this as an opportunity to, to learn and to grow and I'm not gonna put too much pressure. And you know what, if I do five minutes, that's great. I'll call it a win. And then what happened? I worked for three hours and it was awesome, <laughs> right? So just kind of realizing in practice that, wait a minute, this doesn't serve me the way I think it does, while also loving the part of you, you know, that wants to excel, right? And that wants to be your best. Thank you so much. Of course. Hi, thank you. Thank you for the talk. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. And I think I've been needing these introspection steps for a very long time. That's music to my um, ears. <laughs> And my question is about, uh, at the end of the self-guidance questions, 
you talked about how if your emotional self is not fully on board, there's an extra step where you explain to your emotional self so you can make your reason emotion in sync. Um, so my question is about emotional reprogramming. So there are often that I feel like my emotions are not in sync with my reasons and I want to reprogram it so my emotions are always in sync. And I feel like what I've been feeling was uh, throughout time, it just naturally happens. If I've been doing these steps for a long enough time, I just wake up one day and suddenly my emotions are in sync with my reason. Yeah. But I will want that to happen, not subconsciously, but consciously. Mm -hmm. So do I know, you that would be nice. Yes, I hear you. Do you have, do you have <laughs> just, any... Just get aligned already. Yeah, no, so I, I fully sympathize with your question and with that frustration. And I'm sure that there are ways you could I mean, I don't know the details of your particular process. You know, there are ways to kind of tweak it and accelerate it a little bit, and there are ways to be even more intentional about it. There, it's also, generally speaking, it's a skill that improves with practice like any other, and so once you've reprogrammed a few emotions, you kind of get a facility with, you know, your whole psyche kind of reorganized around like, oh, like these are things that change and grow, so my feeling isn't going to stick around forever, and I'm not going to kind of hold as tightly to it. So in that sense, I think, you know, you're... You keep doing what you're doing, and then, you know, sure, there are two, but, but I think fundamentally, yeah, it's a process that takes some time, and I think recognizing that actually changes how you feel about the process, ironically, even in the moment. So it feels different to have a feeling that's kind of lingering, and you know that, uh, yeah, like, I, I, yes, yes, that voice in my head that's saying, like, I'm going to bomb this, and I can't handle the pain and failure, Yes, I, I recognize that that's still there. It, needs, it still needs some learning. It still needs me to kind of prove myself to it. But like it's also kind of willing to go along for the ride with me because it kind of already knows that, you know, it's a little bit suspect, right? It's kind of like, I mean, I analogize. I think thinking about this in terms of like our emotions as children is actually really helpful. Like if you think about a young child who's really scared to look under the bed, but like at the point where now you've explained to them, look, You've let them see you looking under the bed. They know that you didn't get eaten. Nothing came out, you know, to... They've also learned to trust you, like you wouldn't put them in harm's way. They're still really scared, but they're kind of willing to do it because, yeah, the feelings are, but it's like part of a larger context where there's a recognition, like, okay, I'm on my way to learning something here, right? Like, at least I can entertain this now as a hypothesis. That feels really different from... I'm like digging my heels in. Like as I'm approaching the, you know, whatever it is, the conversation I'm gonna have or the difficult assignment, my emotions are like kicking and screaming and they're putting up even more of a fight and it's like I'm constantly embattled. That usually means you need to introspect more, right? Because something isn't adding up in your kind of current conscious, you know, like working memory, what do you call it, RAM, right? Like the current, whatever you have on the screen currently, like, there's some hidden program that's running that you haven't kind of debugged and that you haven't checked such that like that part of you isn't on board, right? And it actually feels different. So I think learning to tell the difference of like, there's a part of me that's resisting this because I need to dialogue with it more. I need to understand, like maybe it's actually kind of seeing a risk that I haven't articulated, but I am, you know, like the hunch is there and nobody's invalidated it for me. And you know, and maybe it's right, maybe it's not, but I need to check. And first, to check, I need to put it into words. So, does that, uh, yeah. I don't know if that helps, but I would watch for that. 
Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. Oh, good question. We have a, an online. Oh, sure. Uh, an online question, if you can answer it in the. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll stick around for a little uh, bit. So. so our online questioner asks, do you have any pointers or perspectives on fruitful introspection versus unproductive rumination? <laughs> That's mean to pose to me as my one-minute question, because that's like <laughs> my entire research career is about that. <laughs> so I refer you to my dissertation paper um, called The How and Why of Restor Restoring Goal Pursuit After Failure, which is all about how to not ruminate and get yourself stuck, but how to constructively ask yourself about the how and the why of your actual goal. So, and then there's a lot of other stuff out there that I'm happy to cite, but I guess it's a good exercise in like, what's my elevator pitch for the thing I've been researching for all these years? So check your goal. If I had to just boil it all down, it's check your goal. Is your goal to actually solve the problem? Or is your goal to feel as if you're solving the problem? I think that's, yeah, that's gonna be my uh, timeout advice to chew on. Thank you all so much. This has been really fun. And really good questions all. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.